But we began this series last week, and we looked to understand Philippians 1, we looked at Acts 16. You say, why do you look at Acts to understand Philippians? Well, Acts 16 tells you the story of the beginning of the church at Philippi. It gives you really the genesis of this church and and gives you the unfolding of its inception and Paul bringing the gospel over into Europe, into Macedonia, and starting this church inside of a Roman colony here at Philippi. And really this story revolves around three people. And, and the whole story has to do with it's just one after another, these three people that are impacted with the gospel. You first had Lydia. Lydia is the CEO businesswoman who's well-to-do. She's in the high fashion industry. You know, Lydia is wearing Prada and seeking Jesus and trying to, trying to research and, and find him. So she gets impacted with the gospel. Paul opens the Bible and explains to her who Jesus is. Then you have a contrast to Lydia. You have this poor little slave girl who is apparently demon oppressed or possessed, and, and she has this ability to actually fortune tell, and her owners are using this to turn a profit and to use her to line their own pockets, and she is there, and Paul, not in a Bible study, but just in the power of the Holy Spirit, rebukes this, and this little girl gets introduced to the gospel, and that's immediately followed by this Philippian jailer, this ex-GI jailer who's about as calloused as you can be who is charged to keep Paul and Silas safely, and instead he puts them in maximum security and tortures them, and he is blown away by the life that Paul and Silas lived before him, and it gets to a point to where he's just, he's so struck by them that he comes to them and he says, whatever you got, I want. I don't know what it is, but what must I do to be saved? Would you just, would you just help me? And we saw in the beginning, in the inception of this church, that the gospel begins to do what the gospel does. The gospel has no boundaries. It's not limited in scope or power. And it begins to attack the most, the most opposite and polar opposite of people. This, this cultured woman, this captive girl, this calloused man, all of them are brought under the umbrella of the name of Jesus Christ, and they band together in this church, and it's an eclectic bunch. It's an unlikely group of candidates to put together to form a church, but nevertheless, they all come together under the gospel, and the gospel begins to break down all of these human constructs that, that they and we have constructed, maybe personally, maybe just societally, it begins to break down race. It begins to break down socioeconomic status. It begins to break down gender identity. It begins to break all of that down and bring these people together for the gospel. And they do. They band in this, in this little church house there at Lydia's place, and they say, let's do something for Jesus. We're different, and we're, we have different aptitude levels. We have, we're, so, we're so different. But you love Jesus, I love Jesus, you love Jesus, I love, we all love Jesus, let's go. Let's do this together. Let's see more people with the power of God and the gracious aid of the Holy Spirit. Let's share the gospel with other people and introduce them to Jesus Christ. And so 10 years have passed, a decade has passed. And now Paul, from a prison cell in Rome, picks up his pen to write back to this church that he loves dearly. And I want us to read the first eight verses together. We're going to dwell in the first two verses this morning But I want us to read the first eight together, and I I just want to reemphasize the love and the affection that Paul had for this church. It's so warm, it's so friendly, and it's so loving as he begins to write to them. And I want us to see this morning just a greeting with significance. That's what I'm calling this. It's a greeting, but but they're they're not insignificant words. They're deeply significant. So let's read it. Verse one, Paul and Timotheus. 
the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. Can you see just how much he loves these people? I thank God and I pray for you and I do that with joy. Verse 5, this is why we're calling this series Together for the Gospel. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Beginning to end, we've just been in this for the gospel's sake. Verse 6, being confident of this very thing, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet or as it's appropriate or as it's fitting, even as it's fitting for me to thank this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace, for God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels or in the affections of Jesus Christ. Paul, basically, this intro is, is as simple as, I love you, I'm thankful for you, we're together in this, and you can see the affection just kind of oozing off of the page. Philippians 1 verse 1 says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me remind you that the first two verses of any book of the Bible are the Word of God. They're equally inspired and just as, just as real and just as there for our edification, for our help, for our instruction, for our, for our admonishment. They're there for us. And these two verses are not meaningless pleasantries like Dear John or Sincerely Yours. This isn't Paul just going through the motions and putting a few words on paper because he felt like it. This is actually here to help us. And I want us to begin to understand these two verses this morning, I first just want to begin very simply with the senders. And this is how the book starts. It starts with Paul and Timotheus. So I'll remind you that Paul and Timothy are real people with real problems, real issues, real lives, real things that weigh on their hearts. And they're writing to real people, to people, the church there at Philippi. And that's why we looked at Acts 16 last week. Because I wanted you to get some of the backstory and be able to connect this letter with people and their stories and what's happening inside of their hearts and lives. And it's, and it's likely that Paul has sat at Lydia's house and her table there at Philippi and told her the story of his, his conversion experience and what happened on the Damascus Road and how the gospel moved into his life. Perhaps Paul has taken this, this slave girl who now a decade later has moved through life and perhaps he's counseled her and he's had to help her through some of the bitterness perhaps that her, her parents sold her into slavery and he's tried to help her through that. And maybe she's getting married now and he's trying to help her through, you know, trusting her husband because there's some, some deep background issues there. But perhaps Paul sat there and held hands with the Philippian jailers, his family, as they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And these are, Paul's a real person. These are real people. They have a real relationship. And, and it's, there's a danger for us being 2,000 years removed from this letter to say, okay, what are the words of these people? I don't know these people. I'm never going to meet them unless, you know, when I get to heaven, I'll meet them one day. These are real people. There's a real relationship here. And, and the backstory is that a decade has passed, and now Paul is no longer planting churches in Asia Minor. He's no longer planting churches in Europe. Now Paul sits in a prison cell at Rome, waiting his audience with Nero, and history tells us he is going to be executed. He doesn't know this, but he's going to be. And here Paul sits in his prison cell, and the church at Philippi had a heart and a longing for Paul, and they sent him one of their pastors, Epaphroditus. 
They sent with Epaphroditus this care package. We don't know what exactly was in the care package. Maybe it was dull pineapples and peanuts. Maybe it was money. Maybe it was clothes. Maybe it was books. I, we don't know exactly what it was. But somehow they sent Paul this, this care package because they loved him. They longed for him. And you can, you can write in your margin. You can read about that on your own time. In, in chapter 2, verses 25 through 30, tells the story of Epaphroditus who had got to Paul with this care package and he got sick. Paul even says he was sick nigh unto death, that he was, this dude was on death's door. He was about to die. But he didn't want, Epaphroditus didn't want the church at Philippi to know. He didn't want them to worry. He didn't want them to be concerned. But they did find out. And they were worried and they were concerned. They began to pray and they began to seek the Lord. And now, some months later, Epaphroditus has made this 250-mile round trip and he's come back to the church at Philippi and giving the gift to Paul, being well physically now, and he's come back to them to give them this letter and to deliver this to him. And, and he gives them this letter that begins with, with introductory words, but they're not, they're not perfunctory. They're not meaningless. They're words that are meant to teach us. So imagine for a moment what it would be like if you were the church at Philippi. That you're the church that loves this man that just took up some sort of offering or collection and, and you sent it to Paul hoping that the ship wouldn't crash and it would all be at the bottom of the ocean. And, and it did in fact get to him. And Epaphroditus is now well and he's back with you. And, and Epaphroditus gets into town and the word begins to spread. Epaphroditus is back. He got a letter from Paul. Let's, maybe a day or two goes by and everyone assembles. They get into the church. And there Epaphroditus begins to walk around and they haven't seen him for some months and people begin to hug him and love him and shake his hand and man, it's so good to see you and we've been praying for you and we just, we're so glad you're back and he, yeah, it was, it was, it was tough. I was worried there for a minute. I mean, I, I thought I was going to die, but I'm so glad to see you and man, I got, I got a letter from Paul and he comes to the front of the church and he gets the mic from the PA man and he, he begins, he doesn't really, but it's first century, but he begins to read this letter from Paul and Timotheus. And I can, I can picture Epaphroditus standing where I'm standing, opening up this letter and just reading the first few words, Paul and Timotheus, and seeing the people in the church with smiles on their faces. Seeing Lydia sitting there with a smile on her face thinking, you know what, I'm so glad he got that care package. I contributed heavily to that. The Lord's blessed me. He's given me so much as a CEO and as a businesswoman. And, and I was able to, I'm so glad he got to him safely. I can picture the jailer sitting there with the arm around his wife and the kids down the row and just, just sitting there thinking, oh, Paul and Timothy, I love, Paul and Tim I love those guys. Epaphras begins to talk and say, you know, Paul, he's, he's, hoping, he gets out of, he's hoping he gets out of prison. He hopes that he's going to get, he doesn't know what's going to happen, but he's wanting to see you. And, and actually, Timothy's right behind me. He's sending Timothy too. And people begin to nudge each other. And, oh, Tim's coming. We love Timmy. Tiny Tim, Timmy, Tim, Tim. He's coming back. We love that guy. I can, I can see the slave girl sitting there with a, just a smile on her face as she hears Paul and Timotheus, these guys that were there at the, at the start of this church, and, and with smiles, just love, and, and the letter begins to just open up and to ooze with love, and there's, there's, it's interesting if you study the introductory marks to Paul's letters, this is an unusual one. You say, why is it unusual? He gave his name. That's not unusual. He said, Paul and Timotheus, but he does not say an apostle of Jesus Christ. He does not say by the will of God. Paul does not use his apostolic authority with these people. He doesn't have to remind them of who he is. He, it's a very warm, friendly greeting. If you look at most of Paul's letters, he will begin them with something like Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And he begins those letters that way because he wants to remind them, 
I'm an apostle. God made me this way. I didn't do it myself. He willed it. And I want to remind you of my authority. And he reminds them of his authority because he's about to slap him upside the head and correct some stuff inside the church. This is what I do with my son right now, Brennan, who's, who's almost four. Here in a couple months, he'll be four. And Brennan is, is your typical firstborn. He's OCD as you can be. And Brennan wants to tell me what to do. And not, I mean, literally, he'll want to tell me, he will tell me, Daddy, you're not listening to me. You disobeyed me. Daddy, you're going to have to go to your room. And there are every day, every day, multiple times a day, I will have to look at Brennan. Brennan, who's the boss? Brennan, Brennan, who's the boss? Daddy's the boss. Okay, Brennan, Daddy's the boss. Let me tell you, you're going to sit there and you're going to eat your toast and you're not going to, you're not going to hit Willow and you're not, what am I doing in that moment? What I'm, I'm trying to establish my authority in Brennan's eyes so that I can in turn give him some correction and put him in line. Paul typically does this, but in this letter in Philippi, this is not what he does. There's no doctrinal error to correct as there was in Galatia. There's no deep theology to cover as there was in Colossae. There's no mystery to unfold as there was at Ephesus. There's no carnal, crazy church that's, that's living really for the world as there was in Corinth. So he doesn't have to start with, I'm an apostle. He just starts warm and friendly. You know us. We know you. Paul and Tim, love you guys. That's how he starts. Say, you're real people. We're real people. We have a relationship and we love each other. And then he says this. He says, okay, here's, here's who we are. Paul and Timothy, you know us. Here's our status. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. Paul says, here's our status. Me and Timothy understand we're servants. We are tools in the hand of our master. Christ's goals are our goals. Christ's mission is our mission. I've submitted myself. This is what Paul's saying. I've submitted myself to God's agenda. I have no problem living in complete devotion and complete obedience to Jesus Christ. I'm willing to go anywhere. I'm willing to do anything. I'm willing to give my life if that's what's necessary. And Paul will give his life. He will be a martyr. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. What he is saying in essence is I understand who I am. I understand that I was a sinner at the slave markets of sin and Jesus Christ came and Jesus bought me from that. He paid the price for me. I get that Jesus loved me, that Jesus served me, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son out of love. I get that he took upon him the form of a servant and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That Jesus loved me and Jesus served me and Jesus has paid for my sins and I know the gospel and I know that I'm going to heaven and I have Jesus and because of that, I love him and I'm willing to serve him. Out of a heart of gratitude and love, I will gladly submit myself and say, you know what, King Jesus, sit on the throne of my heart, rule and reign, have your place in my life, I will willingly be a servant. Does that resonate at all with you? Does, it, does that connect to your heart in the smallest degree? Because if you're saved and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if half of what the Bible says he did for you is true, and more than half is true, all of it's true, but if only half of it were true, then it should put you in a spot where you say, I will gladly, willingly, reasonable service to be able to surrender and say, Lord, rule and reign. Lord, you, you are that, your Lord. I am your servant. The, the word Paul uses here is doulos. Now, there's actually, we really derive from that word, a, a modern word that we've begun to use in, in recent years, 
which is the term doula. Anyone know what a doula is? All right, we have a few that know what a doula is. Let me enlighten you on what a doula is. If you are, my wife and I just had a few children, so we're, we're well aware of what a doula is. A doula is basically a nurse that you can hire for labor and delivery that will come into your room for the labor process, and they will be your own personal nurse. They're not the nurse for the hospital that has to go check on three other patients and be pulled out here and there and fill out all the per- paperwork. They are there just to serve you. Many insurance plans cover this nowadays. My wife and I know this because we checked. We called ours. You cover this because we thought this would be a great idea. This would be awesome. Ours didn't cover it. So we didn't have a doula, but we, we looked into it. But a doula, and really that word is just, it's just completely a transliteration of the Greek word doula, servant. It's someone who comes into your time of need and they serve you. And they wait on you hand and foot, and they say, whatever you need, I'm here to do. Whatever you tell me, I'm I'm happy to do it. I'm here to be for this period of time. I'm here to be your servant. And this is what Paul is saying. I'm here to wait hand and foot. I'm here to do whatever Jesus asks of me. Whatever he gives me, this is what I'm going to do. I will gladly, willingly be his servant. Say, Pastor, I don't know about all that. I'm I mean, I'll come to church, and I'm, I'm, I'll read my Bible a little bit, and like, I'll put on my Jesus music as I go to work some, but man, if I was a servant, I mean, if I gave Jesus rule and reign over all my life, that just sounds like a lot. Like, I mean, people at work are going to start to pick up on that. They're going to notice that, like, Jesus is just like everything to me, and they're going to think I'm some sort of religious zealot, and they're, you know, they're going to think I'm crazy. This is, what, this is what Paul and Timothy are saying. They're saying, we understand who we are. We understand what Jesus has done for us, and we gladly, willingly, with a smile on our face, say, Jesus, we're your servants. Jesus, we submit to you. And this is not meant to be, oh, good for Paul and Tim Tim. They're great people who are spiritual giants, and I'll never get there on my own. No, this is meant to, to challenge you. This isn't just for them super Christians who are supposed to live this and us ordinary Christians. You know, we just, ah, we're never going to get there. No. It's meant to tell us this should be our heart. This should be our attitude that Jesus, it's my reasonable service that I will give you everything. So why don't we do this? It's a fair question, right? Why don't we do this? Because if you're like me, there are days that go by and you say, you know what? Jesus didn't have my all. I would submit to you probably the primary reason that we do this is because we, we desperately want and pursue our own freedom. And we've talked about this before, but freedom is the one kind of common ideal that our country as a whole holds together and we value together. But freedom has a tendency of being redefined and being interpreted as absolute individual autonomy where I can do whatever I want whenever I want. We value this as a culture. I, I think a window into this is our national anthem. We stand up straight, don't say a peep, silence, hand over our heart. At least we should. I'm for that. That's, the Bible doesn't tell us to do that, okay? So I'm not trying to make it a Bible verse. But I think it's very respectful, and we should. Amen? So we sit there, hand over our heart, and we're, and we're quiet, and we're listening. Maybe we're singing along. But before the song ends, we start to, like, go crazy. The Clarks just sang. They got to the end of their song. We clapped. We had a good time. But the song was over. National Anthem, not so. We sing, land of the free, and then we all go crazy. We remove our hand, we start clapping on land of the free, and home of the brave just kind of like trails off somewhere. Like, we really wanted to end right there. That's what we value. Why do we do that? 
I think it shows us a little bit that we really deeply love and care for our freedom. But if we're not careful, what begins to happen is we begin to equate freedom to I'll do whatever I want, whenever I want. I have no boundaries, no borders, no rules, no one telling me what's right or wrong, no authority in my life. Live and let live. Do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt somebody. There's a lot of college students on the University of Pittsburgh this week that are saying things just like that. Just do whatever you want. As long as you don't hurt anybody, it doesn't matter. Just pursue whatever you want for you. And I would say this, especially if you're 30 or younger this morning, tune in here. Your pursuit of absolute freedom will eventually leave you enslaved. It will backfire. You will pursue no one telling me, no rules, no regulations. I do whatever I want, whenever you want. And you will be enslaved to that ideal. And you will never be able to have a meaningful relationship. Because that will require you to limit your autonomy. A real relationship does. Love does that. You get married and you, and you say, I do, I do, I do. What will happen when you have children is that you will begin to limit your own personal freedom. If you want a family one day, you've got to say goodbye to the idea that I'm going to live in absolute autonomy over my life all the time. You want a job that has any significance at all? That employer is going to tell you what to do and what not to do. There's going to be a list of regulations, but some... some especially those that are younger in our culture, are pursuing the idea that I can create this life for me, that I do whatever I want and no one tells me, but you end up, you end up being controlled by that. And that's not a new idea. Alexis de Tocqueville came to America, the French sociologist in 1820 or 1830, somewhere in there. He came to America wanting to study America's prison systems. And he went back home and wrote his book, Democracy in America, one of the most influential books of the 19th century. And inside of his book, Tocqueville, almost 200 years ago, said exactly to this. We are committed to individual freedom, but it can grow cancerous and so undermine the ties of family, neighborhood, and citizenship that it ironically threatens the survival of freedom itself. He predicted exactly what we're doing now. And no man is an island unto themselves. And you, you have to understand that life comes with the responsibility to live in the right boundaries. And it's only when the proper boundaries are in place that you can truly have freedom. The right restraints are necessary. A sailboat has to be in deep enough water and pointed to the wind in order to sail and have that freedom. A fish in the ocean is free indeed, but not free to jump on land and survive. The right restraints are necessary. And what this teaches us as Christians is Paul and, and, and Timothy had gotten to a point where they said, I will gladly be a bond slave. I will gladly be a servant. I will gladly limit my freedom to submit that to King Jesus and to allow him to rule and reign. And they had discovered what Jesus told us, that if you take on his yoke, it's easy. If you take on his burden, it's light. That if you lose your life for his sake, you'll paradoxically find it. That you submitting your freedom to the Lord, living within the right boundaries, the right restraints that he's established and saying, I'm going to let him govern me. I'm going to let him have his way. It's only then that you will discover what true freedom actually is. Even Christians sometimes parrot nonsense that freedom in Jesus means that, means that I just get to do whatever I want and live however I want and sin however I want. No. The Bible never says that. The Bible teaches that the right 
restraints, when you live according to his word and, and you live under his authority, it's then that you find what Jamie talked about in the video. Man, they, they, it seemed like my aunt, they had found this joy and this peace. And I wanted that. It's there that you find it. It's there that you discover the status that Paul and Timothy had is a status that every single one of us should have. We should be servants of Jesus Christ. But then he says this, he says a spot. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, we'll come back to that later, which are at Philippi. The spot is Philippi. Now, I could, I could frankly bore you this morning with the history of Philippi. I could tell you all about Philip II of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, and how he started that city, which makes sense. It's why it's called Philippi, because Philip started it. to Macedonia, Philip of Macedon. But I could, I could bore you with that. I can tell you all about Brutus and Cassius and how they had this showdown, the guys who murdered Julius Caesar at Philippi, and I, I, I bore you with all that. I can tell you about the topography, and that Philippi's up in the city, and it spills down kind of this hillside, and this beautiful meadow there, and it's 10 miles from the port city of Neapolis, and it's on this Ignatian highway that, that's this main artery that connects you to Rome, and I go on and on and on. But frankly, you wouldn't remember any of it, and it wouldn't help your life at all. So what do we learn from the saints were at Philippi. Well, I would say this. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi. I would say it this way. Paul is writing to a local church at Philippi. And I think that there's this soft emphasis on the local church here in Paul's introduction. That, hey, I'm writing to a local church, which is a valuable lesson for us biblically. Because the mission of God is designed to, in the New Testament, to run through local churches. Your own character development and maturation in Jesus Christ, your own growing and learning what it means to be a Christian is designed for you personally to run through a local church. You are supposed to be a part of and connected to part of a local church. It, it doesn't have to be this one. I understand we have people here this morning that maybe you're looking for a church. Maybe, uh, maybe you're out of town and you belong to another local church. That's, it doesn't have to be this one. We're not the, the end-all, be-all of churches, but it should be some local church that we are connected to, that you should be able to say as a Christian that I belong to somewhere. I am part of a body of believers I'm here, I'm inviting people to walk life with me, to hold me accountable, to get to know me. It shouldn't be, if, if you live here in Pittsburgh or from out of town, it shouldn't be that you bounce around from church to church and just, you know, pick what you want from each church and you just do a, a church tour every year. What will happen if you do that is that no one will actually get to know you. No one will actually get to know your life. No one will have the opportunity to walk up to you and tell you, you know what, I'm seeing some things that, they concern me. It's a bit alarming to me that you're starting to act. You didn't always act that way. You didn't say that. You start, when you're a part of a local body and you do life with people and you're connected somewhere, then there becomes this accountability and responsibility and all of a sudden there's something there that's happening far beyond when you're not connected to a local church. I love this this morning. We're, we're live streaming and we live stream every week. We have people tune in. I love that. I love that we have some shut-ins that, that can't get to church. And they, some of you, as their, as their kids or grandkids, you've set up the computer. And Nana, just click this one button and Pastor Mark will come on. And you've, set, you've done that. Okay, I'm glad that you have. We have some people that are, that are sick this morning. Every, 
Every Sunday we do, but especially this time of year, we just had our, our couples retreat this last weekend, and like 10% of our couples had to go home early because like a plague was, was circulating the, the couples retreat. So there's some people right now, hello live stream, there's some people watching me right now. Inevitably some mom's like making dinner and trying to watch the kid. I was like, are they talking to me? I'm talking to you. <laughs> so I'm, th- I'm thankful for live stream that people can check into church. But live streaming, every, live stream, let me just talk to you. If you're streaming every single week and you're never part of local church, it's not supposed to work that way. I, I am extremely grateful for the priesthood of the believer. That you, on your own, and we encourage this and want you to, you can go home this afternoon, tomorrow, Tuesday, and you can meet with Jesus there. You can pray to him, you can worship him, you can open up your Bible and the Holy Spirit of God can speak to you. You don't have to have me tell you what the Bible says. He can teach you and lead you into truth. I love that. We celebrate that. But home church is not a substitution for a local church. That's not the way it works. You can't love Jesus and not love the local church. Those two don't happen. Cyprian said it best almost 2,000 years ago, in 250 A.D., Cyprian said if you have God as your father, you got the church as your mother. It doesn't have to be this church, but you do have the church as your mother. It's supposed to work that way. There is, it's nonsense to say, you know what, I love Jesus, I, I just don't love the church. I mean, I love Jesus, and me and Jesus, we're like that. I mean, we have a good time, and I worship him, but you know what, I got burnt by this pastor, and, and he was an idiot, or he ran off with some woman, or there was some hypocrite, or someone offended me, or this, whatever the case may be. And you know what, I love Jesus, but I'm just, I'm just not into church. That's not how it works. The church is the bride of Christ. Now, I have a bride. Her name is Magdalene Virginia Rule Likens. I have a bride, and I love her. She's somewhere in here. I love her deeply. We, we don't have a perfect marriage. No, no, we don't. But our marriage is awesome and fantastic, and I love her. And if you came to me and said, Pastor Mark, you know what? Love you, man. You're a great guy. I, I enjoy this. I enjoy that. I love you. But, man, you're, your wife, I don't know about her. <laughs> now, truth be told, if you know my wife, you know that would be the opposite. You'd tell her, like, we love you, but your husband's a piece of work. I don't know what's, what the deal is with him. But if you came to me and said, I love you, and just, you know, puffed me up, and then said, but your wife, I don't, uh. You know what's going to happen in that moment? We have a problem. You know, we're not on good terms. You don't love me and run down my wife. You don't love me and criticize my wife, and, and I don't want anything to do with her, and she just, I'll, I'll stiff arm her and keep her arms. It don't work that way. You don't love me and, and somehow want to impose physical harm on my wife. I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. I'm saved. But you're not going to do physical harm to my wife if it's within my power. I don't know karate, but I know crazy, you know? I will, <laughs> I will judo chop you. That's not how, right? Can, can, can I get a witness here? All right? The church is the bride of Jesus. So you cannot love Jesus and not love the church. It doesn't work that way. And I get that churches aren't perfect, all right? I get, I'm a part of it. If the church was perfect, just the fact that I'm a part of it would ruin it. I get churches aren't perfect. I get that we have to bear one another. We have to put up with each other sometimes. 
We have to, people do offend us or took my seat or took my parking spot or whatever the, whatever the case may be. I get that there are hypocrites in the church. I had a conversation with someone just a, a few weeks ago. It was maybe here, I don't know, eight or nine months ago, came, got saved, got baptized during the church, man, the Lord's working in his life. I'd seen him for a couple weeks, and I called him and said, man, I, I've missed you. Where have you been? Are you moved? you got a different job? You're sick? What, what's going on? She, you know, I love you, Pastor Mark. Man, I, I love the church, but I'm, I hate to tell you, there's, there's just some hypocrites at Harvest Baptist Church. Not like I didn't know, you know. <laughs> but, like it was a news flash. Like <laughs> I, I found out some new piece of information. And you know what, you know what I'm saying? Hey, I, I kind of like church, but I discovered that there's some people that, I mean, they, they were a little bit plastic, or they, there was a little bit of facade, and, and that's turned me off. And that naturally does turn us off, but can I tell you, that doesn't, that doesn't give me or you the right to say, I don't want to do church anymore. Jesus had 12 disciples, and one of them was a hypocrite. Like, Jesus was their pastor. So I feel if I can get 11 out of 12, I'm doing all right. Like, if, you know, 8% of the church was hypocrites, I feel like I'm on par with Jesus there. That happens. But that's not a reason to run away from church and say, I don't want church or I'm not going to love it. No, I'll tell you unashamedly, unapologetically, unequivocally this morning that the greatest institution on the face of our planet is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus started the church. He loves the church. He gave himself for the church. He's the head of the church. Church is important. And I'm glad to be part of the church, just generally speaking, but I'm glad to be part of this church. To be on the team at Harvest Baptist Church, rowing together for the gospel, to be in ministry together, trying to influence and shape and work on each other's lives and and help each other and hold each other accountable and give Jesus to other people. I'm thankful for that. It's not perfect. We have a ways to go. We have some issues to address. We have some things to change. Yes, absolutely. But I love the church. I, I would even argue this. Interesting thought. I would argue that the hypocrites in the church actually accentuate and speak to the validity of real Christianity. There are some lawyers that are shysters. There are some doctors that are quacks. There's some money that's counterfeit. But you don't stop going to a lawyer when you need one. You don't not go to the doctor because there's a quack out there when you're sick. You still go to the doctor. I would be willing to bet you haven't burned all your money because there's some counterfeits floating around. If you have begun that process, stop, hit the pause button, give it to me. I will burn it for you. You know, I will, I'll take care of it. But the, the fake or the fraud actually speaks to the validity of the real deal. Men don't counterfeit candy wrappers. They counterfeit $50 bills. Why? Because there's value in a $50 bill. There's something substantial there. There's something genuine there. And the fact that there are hypocrites in churches, not just our church, sure there are here, but pick whatever church you want, there's going to be a hypocrite in them. That should kind of lean us into this idea that there's something real there. They're wanting to, to feign or fraudulate something that is actually substantial and real, so you ignore, you ignore the counterfeit and you say, I want the real thing. I, I, want, I want to do church and do it well and be a part of, of a band of believers and a team and a family that's, that's going together for the gospel. I am entirely out of time, so I'm not going to be able to finish this sermon. 
Adrian Rogers said it this way. He passed away a few years ago, but he said it this way, which I love. The old ship of Zion is not going to sink because there's a few bad sailors on board. And that's the truth of the church. And you have to understand when Paul begins his letter, he says, Paul and Timothy, you know us, you love us, we love you. I don't have to tell you I'm the boss. We, we love each other. And we're, we're servants of Jesus. That's our status. We've accepted that. We love that. We gladly embrace that we are servants and we submit to the agenda of Jesus. And I'm writing to you in a local church. Paul had started a whole lot of churches. He loved this one especially, but he started a whole lot of churches. And I'm writing to you specifically. This body right here that, that's together. You're an eclectic bunch, but the gospel has unified you and broken down your boundaries and, bo and borders and it's brought you together. And I'm writing to you. You say, what, what, what do I do with that this morning? I'll give you three next steps and we'll be done. If, I would say first and foremost, if you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, may I invite you to do that. The gospel had a major impact on these people. And if you've never, you say, I don't know about submitting to Jesus and this and that because I don't even know Jesus. Maybe you relate with Jamie's testimony that she was searching for something and wanted something, but she didn't know what it was and came to a point where she, she got on a living room there at her chair and said, I know I'm a sinner and I know I need you and I can't do this myself. And Jesus, would you save me? If you've never done that, Maybe you've been in church, maybe you've prayed a lot of time, maybe you're religious, that's not what I'm talking about. If you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, say yes. Respond, accept Him. If you don't know that you're saved, I'd, I'd love for you, every single Christian in this room would love for you to accept Jesus and become a follower of Him. Beyond that, if you, if you're, if you can not honestly say, I'm a part of a local church, I, I belong, I'm a member, I'm plugged in, I'm serving, if, you shouldn't be on the sidelines. Be in the game. If that's you and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm just, I feel like I'm on the outskirts. I just kind of float through. I, I come to church. I mean, I get here as, as late as I possibly can. 1029, I pull up in the parking lot. I get out of here as fast as I can. I don't know anybody. No one knows my name. It's not designed to be that way. Get connected. This is, the sermon is not designed to be a Discover membership plug, but it's, it's low-hanging fruit, so I'll grab it. This, sun, this Saturday... 10 to 12.30, we'll have a class that's designed to introduce you to our church and try to get you plugged in and connected a little more. Come, check it out. You don't have to join. You don't have to do anything. But if you want to, there'll be an opportunity there. Maybe, maybe say, I am plugged in. Okay, let me challenge you. Can you say with Paul and Timothy, my status is servant. I gladly, willingly, out of love and gratitude to Jesus say, you have it all. There's no piece of the puzzle that you don't own. Every corner of my heart, you're reigning. And Jesus, I am your servant. Whatever you want. You want me to share the gospel with that pe person? I would love to because it's great news. And they, they want great news and so do I. You want, you want me to go to the mission field? You want, me to, you want my money? You want my... What, I don't care what it is, Jesus. I'm yours. And if you can't honestly say here and take inventory of your heart that, man, that, that's me, then let me challenge you. It should be. He is deserving. It's reasonable. It's logical that he would have it all and we would be able to say, you know what, he's our king. He's done so much for me, I'll do a little bit back.